For McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. M&A is a hot topic today, and we read about it in the media all the time. Executives think about it as one of many necessary tools to grow their business. We also hear a lot about ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. But what do the two have in common? Today, we're joined by two of our experts on the topic of ESG, Sarah Burnov and Robin Nuttall. Sarah is a partner in our Stockholm office and co-leads our institutional investing practice in Europe. She's also co-author of the recent article, More Than Values, the values-based sustainability reporting that investors want. Robin is a partner in our London office and is a leader in our work in regulatory and government affairs. He's also co-author of the recent article, Five Ways That ESG Creates Value. We caught up with Sarah and Robin at our 2020 European M&A conference that we held recently in London. Sarah, Robin, welcome. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Let's start with what may be a rather basic question, but could you go into a little bit more detail about what ESG is and how it's risen in importance? Well, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, mm -hmm. and it's, as you hear, it's quite a broad uh, set of issues within that, uh, all the way from uh, carbon dioxide footprint to labor practices to uh, to corruption. And uh, why it's relevant in M&A situations is that there is an increasing uh, body of research showing that there is a positive link between ESG performance and financial performance or value creation. And so uh, why are the three grouped together? They seem somewhat disparate. They tie together in the sense that the environment, the social factors, and the extent to which you have good governance impact your license to operate okay. as a business with the external world. If you're an energy or resources company, to what extent do you manage your environmental footprint? To what extent do you enhance diversity? To what extent are you transparent in your contributions to a country? That impacts your license to operate with your stakeholders around you, communities, regulators, governments, and increasingly, of course, NGOs powered by social media. And this is why there's been such a high interest level in the question of ESG during the last five years in particular. Consumers are now much more demanding high standards of uh, sustainability and quality of employment from businesses, and that's driven by millennials, by Gen Z. Regulators and policymakers are getting much more interested in ESG because they need the corporate sector to help them solve social problems like uh, environment, like pollution, like emissions, uh, like diversity. And then the investor community has got uh, much more interested. If you take the US as an example, there's around about uh, a quarter of the assets under management are ESG rated investments. So that's around about $12 trillion. So this is something which really matters now to investors as well as to consumers and businesses. Great. What are companies doing to improve their performance on ESG metrics? I think that depends a lot on which industry you're active in. Okay. As we said, right, the ESG is a very broad set of topics. Sure. So obviously, it's th there are different things that's sure. important to a consumer, uh, to a consumer goods producer right. versus a software service right. provider, for example. Uh, but what many companies do is that they they 
realizing the link between value creation and ESG, they tend to want to address some of the ESG factors that are material for their particular industry or, or corporation. And what we're also seeing is that there is an increasing expectation of uh, corporates to not only maximize shareholder value, but actually take a broader role in society. So, for example, if, if you're a consumer goods uh, company, it's getting increasingly important for you to be able to offer uh, sustainable products. So you would see uh, chocolate providers, for example, having fair trade products and sustainable options in their assortments. And there is research showing that consumers are actually now, not earlier, but now they're actually prepared to pay a premium for that. The ESG factors do vary. If you take the oil and gas industry, there's a very strong focus on carbon emissions and emissions reduction. If you take the pharmaceuticals industry, there's a very strong focus on the safety of drugs, you know, and as well as the quality of, of drugs. So Taking an industry-by-industry lens is critical. And now you will see an emergence of the ESG scoring agencies essentially building deeper industry-by-industry viewpoints. How would one think about um, looking at ESG across industries? So I think the first question you'd need to answer, Sean, is to what extent does good ESG translate into good financial performance? Sure. And on that question, there's been more than 2,000 academic studies. Okay. And the balance of those studies, around about 70%, finds that there is a positive relationship between the ESG scoring on the one hand and the financial returns on the other hand, whether you measure that by equity returns or profitability or valuation multiples, and increasingly also in the cost of capital. There is now some evidence emerging that a better ESG score translates into around about a 10% lower cost of capital as effectively the risks which impact your business in terms of a license to operate are reduced if you have a strong ESG proposition. And with a lower cost of capital, you have a higher value uh, and more dry powder to make acquisitions, which ties us back to the M&A conference and, uh, and your discussion today. Uh, take us through a couple of the other key findings that you shared with the audience during today's session. So the question that we've looked into was, why is there a relationship between ESG performance on the one hand and financial outcomes on the other? And essentially, we identified five sources of value, fundamental business value, that explain these findings. The first of these is top-line growth. So if you are a company that has a stronger sustainability proposition, on the consumer side, you are more likely to attract customer loyalty. You may attract completely new customer segments if you look at the development, of, for example, of plant-based food. There's evidence that brands which have a more sustainable impact, for example, detergents grow faster than brands which have a less sustainable proposition. On the B2B side, they're also a link. So large companies these days are seeking to channel ESG through their value chain. And if you want to be a supplier to one of the world's largest retailers, for example, you better have a strong sustainability proposition. You better have a strong proposition on plastics, on packaging, 
on water use and so on. The second is cost. So if you are more resource efficient, more water efficient, less packaging, then you will in general have a lower unit cost structure through time. So there is a, a cost advantage as well from ESG. The third area is in terms of your regulatory relationships. If you have a more responsible treatment, for example, of your footprint around your asset, if you're a resource industry, then the chances of an extremely adverse punitive regulatory outcome are lower. And therefore, there's potentially a regulatory uh, value here. The fourth is the notion of talent. So these days, uh, particularly millennials, demand purposeful work. And so if you are an employer who can meet that need, then you will attract better talent, you'll retain that talent, you'll have higher productivity in the workplace. And the evidence suggests that that's worth roughly 2% on your stock price each year. So around about 20% over 10 years. So talent really matters. And ESG is very strongly linked to talent. And then the fifth factor that we find is investment optimization. There are downside risks and upside opportunities. There are downside risks if you happen to be the holder of an asset which becomes stranded. Coal assets, oil tankers have seen significant write-downs in their valuations in recent years. Conversely, there are enormous opportunities from ESG-related investments. If you think about air quality and the desire to improve air quality in many countries around the world, there's a huge demand for technology which helps you improve air quality. And when you add up all of those five, that's what explains, for example, this roughly 10% advantage in your cost of capital. You know, as we talk about the link between value creation and ESG, you know, one of the things that comes up is this notion of correlation versus causality. Mm. In other words, is it just that companies that are more valuable and are creating more value have the flexibility to focus more on ESG topics? Or is it the focus on ESG that is improving their, their value? Can you just comment on that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I also think that's uh, one of the maybe the flaws of the uh, research that's out there. Because uh, as said, right, there is um, increasing evidence for this positive correlation. However, to my knowledge, casualty has not yet been proven. Okay. Uh, then I come from the investor community serving right. a lot of investor clients. And what they would say is that, Yes, we could spend a lot of additional time looking into whether there is a correlation or actual casualty and spend time on research. However, in practice, we are happy to conclude that there is a link and invest with that in mind. So, Sarah, one of the things that we're seeing is that um, some big investors uh, have recently made substantial statements regarding ESG. Um, but one of the challenges in sort of really being out there in terms of putting a priority on ESG as an investor is you need a good metric. You need a way to value it. What are, what are some of your experiences in sort of the ways that ESG is measured and, and what do you see as some of the sort of emerging challenges and ways to overcome them? We did uh, do a research effort actually on understanding the landscape of sustainability reporting and there are quite a few uh, interesting conclusions coming out of that. I think first of all it's uh, indeed an area where there is a lot of information and a lot of reporting. Most large corporates report extensively and ambitiously around 
ESG in order mm-hmm. to inform their stakeholders. However, with all that reporting, the stakeholders have quite a difficult time making sense out of the data and interpreting it. In fact, uh, we saw a, a recent survey that highlighted this, saying that while 90% of corporates report on sustainability, only 15% of investors say that they can successfully integrate this information into their investment decisions. Is it a lack of standardization? What What are some of the, the things that keep the, yeah. that lead to that 15%? Yeah, I think that's, that's one part to it. First of all, uh, linked to, uh, to that, you find around 10, 12 different frameworks and standards to which you can report if you're a corporate. And also as a corporate, you're free to choose which of them that you want to report to. And in fact, many corporates select several. So you find a lot of data and uh, also with, in most cases, quite limited transparency to the how that relate, data relates to the financial performance of the company. So I think that's one. And uh, closely linked to that is the lack of standardization of these metrics, as you mentioned, right? So a metric like diversity or water consumption can be defined in various different ways, depending on which standard you choose to adopt. And then thirdly, there is no uh, validation or auditing of this data. So as a stakeholder, you can also not be fully comfortable with the quality of the data that you're looking at. So if we compare this to financial reporting, for example, we need to go around 100 years back in time to find the same level of maturity. Hopefully it won't take another 100 years. I think this is an industry that's moving uh, at a high speed with a lot of uh, good uh, initiatives coming up and it's developing quickly. But nevertheless, in order to uh, use this data in a good way, uh, corporates and investors today will need to find their way uh, in order to in order to be able to effectively make ESG assessments uh, on the basis of this data out there. And on things like sustainability, so are there issues like water consumption as a percentage of revenue? Like, what are some of the specific challenges in terms of measuring sustainability? Well, I think one is the one you just mentioned, right? You don't really typically know, or it's you have different definitions around how you're going to use that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is um, some of this data is also not uh, measured for a long time. So you can be there can be quality issues in making the measurements. This is very much uh, a nascent industry. Mm. So there's a recent paper by MIT called Aggregate Confusion, which essentially examines the correlation between these different scores and finds that it's only around about 40%. There's only around about a 40% correlation across these scores, whereas for an S&P and a Moody's, it's around about 97%. ESG is much more qualitative. What represents good diversity in a company? How do I assess that? What is good transparency? That's necessarily got to have some judgment involved. So it's it's never going to be as perfectly scientific, you know, as a credit rating score. Once we are in a situation like we have for financial reporting, where ESG reporting is standard and can be compared, what what will the advantages be in terms of that that link to value creation and M&A? I believe the advantage will be that it's easier for uh, an executive or an investor to form a decision and to uh, correctly value an asset. 
given that it's established that there is a link between ESG performance and uh, financial value creation, then it will be important to be able to uh, assess ESG performance in a reliable way. And uh, that's challenging today. It, it can be done and there, there are ways around it, but, but still it's, uh, it's uh, challenging. I would say that there are a lot of uh, both good standard setters and uh, a lot of uh, ambitious stakeholders in this industry. And there are also a lot of initiatives trying to uh, consolidate uh, reporting and data. So that's why I said hopefully it doesn't take another hundred years, but right. it uh, lies in the near future. But still, there is a way to go before uh, there is uh, this data is easy to uh, use and interpret. Got it. Robin, um, could, could you just talk a little bit about what the potential implications would be for M&A then? Is it something that you have to think about during diligence, post-diligence, and more focused on integration? Where does ESG fit in? So ESG fits in fundamentally because as an acquirer, you're looking to assess the quality of the assets. The first thing is you will want to develop a deep understanding of the ESG risks and the ESG opportunities. Are you buying into an asset which might be facing into a headwind in terms of its customers? Are you buying into an asset which may be facing into a regulatory headwind because it's not managing its footprint responsibly? Conversely, are you buying into an asset which is well positioned to grow given the consumer trends and which is going to get good you know, development in terms of talent and cost? So... We view this as something which it's important to evaluate as part of the diligence exercise in exactly the same way as you'll be diligencing the market position of the target and the customer base. And so, Robin, how would this fit in to, so for a company that's already made an acquisition, now they're in the integration stage, uh, what do they do? You can still develop a point of view on the material risks and the material opportunities from ESG. Once you've acquired the asset, there's potentially greater urgency to do that, given that there can be regulatory impacts, employee impacts, customer impacts. And in some ways, an advantage is that you can then build that into your convergence planning, if you will, your integration planning. And you can think about, you know, what are the initiatives which I want to accelerate, for example, um, in the target or if it's a merged entity in the new merged entity, uh, which are going to enhance ESG and mitigate the risks. So, Sarah, what, what are some of the things that practically you can do to address this? I think there are five important things. Um, the first one, which is important, is to find out, given the asset or industry you're looking into, what are the factors that are truly material? i.e. that drives value from an ESG perspective. perspective. So given the breadth of this area, and in fact, we found in our research that if you put all these standards and frameworks together, there are around 40 different ESG areas. 40, 40. 40, 40. And uh, when you look at those through the lens of what is typically material, what's in the public eye, what are linked to the SDGs, we could narrow them down to around nine Okay. different ESG factors. And then obviously, if you take the next step to look at what is the industry uh, in focus, then you'll find that only a few of them or a subset of are those relevant. are the ones that are most relevant. So I would say that's the first thing you would need to do. The second thing is around trying to assure that you have high quality and consistent data. And 
that means looking at metrics that are clearly defined mm -hmm. and that are uh, typically mature okay. where you can find good data sources and can trust the data that you that you see thirdly you would want to uh, complement any quantitative data you have with qualitative data mm. and uh, compare to industry peers okay. fourthly you want to uh, assess what are the relevant improvement areas and red flags and lastly you want to uh, translate those improvement levers or risks into value creation opportunities let's talk a little bit about the uh, the qualitative data so typically a company that's doing this would identify some quantitative data related to ESG for their industry right and then they want to augment that with qualitative data. Can you share with me an, a, an example of how, how um, a specific company might do that in any industry? Yeah, sure. So you would want to have a few quantitative metrics that are easy to compare. So sure. for example, carbon footprint would be a typical sure. one. Uh, but what you can also do is to complement that data with some insights into how this company qualitatively work with reducing their carbon footprint. Okay. So for example, what are the ambitions they have in place? What are the procedures and processes they have in place? And this will not only give you a view on how they perform today versus peers, but also it gives you a view about how they are set up to, pro uh, to uh, perform in the future. What's their trajectory? And typically when you're looking at the quantity of data, how far back do companies need to go to sort of get a sense for their trajectory? That's a great question. I think on this topic, few companies have reported it for a very long time in an extensive way. Mm -hmm. So I would rather try to look forward with the qualitative data to get the view on the trajectory. So assuming a company has sort of figured out their standardized data for their industry, they've figured out what are the key metrics, and they've got some aspirations set, also looking at their qualitative measures also that uh, would be relevant to their industry. Well, how do you actually put a plan in place? Can you, can you share a little more with our listeners on that? The last step is that you want to use all of this information in order to be able to quantify mm -hmm. a value creation potential. And this step is quite often overlooked because ESG might be seen as something that's not... Quantifiable. Not quantifiable, exactly. And uh, however, what we are seeing is that there is real value in several of these levers. So for example, for a company to be able to reduce their energy consumption, mm -hmm. that has a huge uh, potential value creation opportunity. So uh, I believe that it's quite important as you're looking to assess your own portfolio or a potential target that you truly understand and translate this opportunity into what it means in terms of a financial value. And so coming back up to the sustainability point, let's say you've got a business that is, is resource intensive. So how does the concept of ESG translate there to a company where some of these sustainability factors are already major cost of production and would contribute to value even if they weren't thinking about it in that context? ESG puts the spotlight on some of these, not only yes. in those companies where it's uh, obvious, from a value creation perspective, as you said, but also in several companies where it has been less obvious, okay. but, but where the value creation potential is still there. 
So you definitely find an increasing focus on, for example, water usage in uh, consumer goods producers. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for one client where we recently conducted a due diligence and added a sustainability work stream to that diligence, we found as we were looking at value creation opportunities, around 40% of the actual value creation opportunity for that target was in areas linked to sustainability. And I think that surprised both the client and us. Any final thoughts you want to share? So I think the final thought is that all the evidence suggests that ESG is here to stay. It may change name. It was arguably called license to operate. It was called corporate social responsibility. It's associated with the rise of purpose. So there will be different nomenclatures, but the topic uh, fundamentally of the company's license to operate is here to stay. Sarah, Robin, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us on our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to read more about this topic, you can go to McKinsey.com, where you can find more articles about ESG and M&A in the strategy and finance section of our website. If you'd like to receive updates featuring our latest insights on strategy, M&A, and corporate finance, you can also sign up for email updates uh, and at the bottom of every article. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and to connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.